Okay, this is, we're kind of cruising right along here in the book of Numbers. Um, I had a little bit of, whenever I try to come up with something to share with you wonderful people, I always look for signs, right? Two witnesses is nice. And so I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about the power of speech, the things that we say, and just to encourage us in spiritual growth. I need that myself. And it was inspired partially by a Torah club we had on Wednesday night and by a Rav Mike teaching that he gave back in 2015 on this week's Torah portion. So we're going to start out there in this week's Torah portion. This week's parsha deals with many different topics. There's a lot in there. All are meaningful and have, have application for us, of course. Rav Mike always asserted that Israel and their sojourning in the wilderness was a, uh, a picture of our lives today. You know, we too are on a struggle, on a journey to the promised land, and we face hardships and obviously lots of struggles on our path. Sometimes we can lose sight of our destination and our hopes and our promises, and a little bit of uh, that walk of our faith can begin to wane a little bit. Um, maybe get, become slowly diminished, and if this is left unchecked, we might find ourselves back in Egypt and enslaved from the very things we're redeemed from. So we need to be kind of on top of it at times. It's, we all go through seasons, of course. What we'll read today, of course, has a lot to do about our talk and our speech, things that we say, our complaining, right, and convention. Each time we encounter hardships, we tend to do this. But this sort of evil speech is not good in the ears of Adonai, and he responds. And there's many examples of this in the next few weeks. We won't talk about them. I'm not going to talk about them this morning, but we'll read about them, and they're very well known. When Miriam and Aaron grumble against Moshe, right, she gets struck with leprosy. That's just because of things they said. Even the bad report of the 12 spies, a very terrible thing to happen, Ultimately, the sin was something that they said. It's not a sin to think that there's bad things in the land, but when they say that to the people, that's where the sin occurs. In the face of hardship, and we all face it in many ways, our speech can get us into trouble. Thankfully, the Torah gives us some help with this problem. So let's turn there. We're going to look at a couple quick passages in the Torah before we kind of jump around a little bit. But we'll be in Numbers chapter 11 to begin with. You are just there earlier. Numbers chapter 11, and then we're going to jump forward to Numbers chapter 21, about 10 chapters later. So first we're going to start in Numbers, in this week's Torah portion, in Numbers chapter 11. And we're going to kind of look at two different, very short passages of Scripture. So we're going to read the first three verses in Numbers chapter 11. The people were murmuring in the ears, this is verse 1, the people were murmuring in the ears of Adonai about hardship. And when Adonai heard, his anger burned. The fire of Adonai blazed among them, ravaging the outskirts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses. So Moses prayed to Adonai and the fire died out. The name of that place was thus called Taborah because Fire from Adonai had burned among them. Okay. They might slip back there really quick, but maybe put a finger there. 
and go forward about 10 chapters to chapter 21. Something very similar is going to happen there. Very similar, but a little different as well. Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Sea of Reeds in order to go around the land of Edom. The spirit of the people became impatient along the way. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? Because there's no bread, no water, and our very spirits detest that despicable food. So Adonai sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many died. Many of the people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned when we spoke against Adonai and you. Pray to Adonai for us that he may take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. So Moses here has pretty much the same reaction both times, and Moses really, I mean, even we can connect the association between evil speech, the people's sinful murmuring, and the punishments that's meted out by God here. And there's a common denominator that in both cases, repair and restoration comes as a direct result of prayer. The punishment that's meted out is a direct result of people's sin. We should, of course, it's all of us know that very basic sense, sin is everything that runs counter to God's will regardless of what it looks like. There's many different forms of sin. There is uh, greed. You could be greedy in your workplace or other forms of greed, lust, um, rebellion. But the biggest source of sin is our mouth. Uh, if you could, our mouth is the greatest source of the number of sins that we commit, probably because we speak or talk more than really anything else that we actually do. Lashan hara, that's why the sages talk so much about Lashan hara, evil speech, gossiping, foul language, complaining about whatever situation. Whenever we contract any of these forms of sin, God's protection may be diminished in us or even worse, removed from us altogether, and we become you know, the target of uh, attack, susceptible to attack. The deceiver... Hasatan doesn't make us sin. We do a great job of that on our own. But unrepentant sin leaves one susceptible to spiritual attack. Unrepentant hearts, right, and attitudes that actually take pride in their sin, that just lays out a welcome mat for the adversary to come in, do his work, strengthen the sinner in his own resolve, and down a dark spiral they may go. But in today's Parsha, know that the children of Israel are only about two years here. Two years have passed since redemption from Egypt. And yet the children of Israel find themselves a bit spiritually immature. Um, they understood the power and effectiveness of prayer, but it's somewhat apparent that they didn't really possess personal prayer life of their own. They keep going to Moshe. So back in chapter 11, in the first reading that we read, when the people get into trouble, the people cried out to Moshe. Moshe prays for them. He intercedes for them and rescues them. In chapter 21, the second reading, it seems the people wisened up a little bit. The people first said, we sinned by speaking against Adonai and you. 
pray to Adonai that he rid us of these snakes. So they do a couple things here. They confess, and then they request prayer, and this shows a sense of spiritual maturing, spiritual growth in the children of Israel. Now, between chapter 11 and chapter 21, there's several more times the people get themselves in trouble with their speech. But it isn't until chapter 21 that they begin to really sort of grow up a little bit. And that's growth. Growth is good. Perhaps the people began, obviously, to uh, realize that their speech against Adonai and uh, Moshe, their mediator, was now having some bad effects. And so the lesson thus learned so far in their spiritual growth is repentance and prayer. Basic, but very effective. On the other hand, spiritual maturity, spiritual growth, that's a bit trickier. Because even today, all of us sitting here, we all have a tendency to think that we kind of, you know, quote unquote, we have it spiritually, right? We're doing pretty good. And we can get lulled into a stagnant season kind of easily, spiritually speaking. We should always be looking for more revelation and greater understanding that drives us to seek understanding, wisdom, and uh, even praying for further maturation of our faith and healthy spiritual growth. Right? We want healthy spiritual growth. When we think about hardship, of course, if anyone had the right to complain, it was Job. I want to share some thoughts about Job because, again, that guy, oh, a lot of stuff, rough stuff happened to him. There's a couple witnesses to um, what I'm going to share about the book of Job as well. Because Rav Mike, he brought up Job in one of his teachings that I'd read this week. Um, and also, I had an odd conversation with ChatGPT about it, where that brought it up. If ChatGPT is something I started, uh, I downloaded this week. It's artificial intelligence. If you've ever, I was listening to Messiah podcast. There's a new Messiah podcast came out this week or last week. And Aaron Eby is the guest on there, and he does some software development. And so they're asking them all kinds of questions about artificial intelligence. So I got interested and I downloaded it. Um, I figured, well, if they're going to talk about it. Okay, I know. Artificial intelligence can be a very hot button issue. So before you think I've taken the mark of the beast, listen to the podcast. That's really good. So I asked it. Are you familiar with the Bible? And it says, yes, as an AI language model, I am familiar with the Bible and its teachings. I thought, oh, that's cool. So I thought, well, maybe I'll ask it an, uh, like a question. I said, what do you think, what book do you think is the oldest? And then it replied back. It says, as an AI language model, I don't have personal opinions or beliefs. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. That's sort of like it has to have that, you know, like a, a warning out there. But then it says... However, scholars consider the book of Job to be one of the oldest books in the Bible, along with the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, um, which are collectively known as the Pentateuch or Torah. I thought, well, really close, ChatGPT, kind of left out Deuteronomy, but at least it's talking about Torah, you know, AI. I mean, what a time to be alive, right? 
but I guess even AI has a little bit to learn. Anyways, the book of Job. There are several witnesses to that, and when you talk about hardship and how what you can say during hardship gets you into trouble, there's a few really good examples of the book of Job. So let's go there. We're going to start in Job. We're starting chapter 7. It's on page 744. I think most of us are very familiar with um, Job, a righteous man, right? And um, he was tested with his family being taken away from him and with sickness. Um, very, it seems like some very, very hard things happened to Job. So, um, Job begins to lament a little bit about his situation. Job's going to say some things that uh, maybe he wishes he could take back in chapter 7. Um, let's jump to verse 17 on chapter 7. So Job 7, 17, this is Job speaking, and he's really in a down spot in life. He's, really, he's not doing so good, and so he's talking here. And he says, What is mankind that you magnify him, that you set your heart on him, that you visit him every morning and test him in every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? That's kind of snarky there, isn't it? Why have you set me as your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will search for me, but I will be gone. Now, Job is beyond frustrated at this point and hurt. Uh, I can understand and sympathize with his sentiment, his passionate words here, of course. But he seems to overstate his righteousness a little bit at times in a couple different spots and when he's speaking in the book of Job. Now, Job has three friends who come and help him. They try to come and help him, and they do a decent job. They come, they visit him, they sit with him, they give him some time to mourn, and then they try to give him some advice. They're trying to do well, and they're well-meaning, I'm sure. But they get rebuked about uh, their help, and it's because of the advice that they give him. They, they assume that the bad things that happen to Job is because of something Job did, and Job needs to repent. Now, you might think, well, that's why would asking somebody to repent be a bad thing? But what they're saying is their speech assumes the motivation of God in the matter. That what they're talking, they're assuming the motivation of God, which is a dangerous thing to do because sometimes bad things just happen and we not need to understand why. But in Job 33, he gets some solid advice, finally. If you go forward a few pages to Job chapter 33, after his three friends try giving him some advice, there's a young man who has been sitting around, listening to all this, patiently. He's been biding his time. The three friends have said what they've had to say, and it really hasn't gotten Job anywhere. And so this, now this young guy... Uh, Elihu, he kind of jumps in there, and he's going to sort of, he's kind of going to give it to everybody a little bit. Verse 33, verse 1 says, But now, Job, listen to my words and give ear to everything I have to say. 
See, now I open my mouth, my tongue in my mouth uh, speaks. My words are from upright heart. My upright heart, my lips speak sincerely for what they know. The Ruach, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of Shaddai gives me life. Answer me if you can. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Look, I am uh, the same as you before God. I too am formed from clay. See, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure be heavy on you. He's, he's, he's going to talk to Job here. He says, Indeed, you have said in my hearing, I heard the sound of the words. Now he's going to quote Job. This is what Job said in the hearing of Elihu. Verse 9, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent without iniquity. Yet he has found, he has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He puts my feet in the shackles. He watches closely all my paths. Now, Elihu is going to tell Job what he thinks. He says in verse 12, But in this you are not right. I answer you, for God is greater than a mortal. So Elihu is kind of laying into Job a little bit here, saying, Listen, I heard you say this. This isn't right. You're not right. Verse 13, why do you contend against him that he does not answer all his words? Indeed, God speaks once, even twice, yet no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in bed, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn a man from his conduct and to cover a person's pride. He spares his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Or a person is chastened with pain on his bed, with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his soul desirable food. His flesh wastes away from sight, and his bones, once unseen, now stick out. His soul draws near to the pit, and his life to the messengers of death. Sounds a lot like what's happening to Job. If there's an angel beside him, a messenger, one out of a thousand, to declare to a man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh be restored like a child and let him return to the days of his youth. He entreats God and is accepted by him. He sees his face with a shout of joy. He restores to the man his righteousness. Now, what does the man do? He sings to others, saying, I have sinned and perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life sees the light. See, Eliyahu here is telling him, this is how you should react. God is a great God, a merciful God, but a powerful God. And you don't react by saying, woe is me, why are these things happening to me? You react by further lifting God's name up and praising him. For if you're not in the pit, you have life and you're sustained by God, and there is reason for praise. Not always the easy adv easiest advice to hear or give out, but that's why Elihu here waited for so long after all his friends tried to help him. He waited bided his time, and then finally has to give some advice to Job. So in short, Elihu kind of lays into Job's friends there, um, and 
Job's attitude. He declares God's justice. He exalts God's greatness. And it really does end well for Job and all his friends. If we turn to chapter 42, near the end of the book of Job, it's always nice to kind of end these things. We need to hear like the ending of this, how this ends, lest we kind of jump out of the book of Job with that taste in our mouth. So after all is said and done, Job is going to redeem himself here at the end of the book. Job 42, verse 1 says, Job answered Adonai and said, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke without understanding. He's admitting that now. Surely I spoke without understanding things too wonderful for me which I did not know. You said, hear now and I will speak. I will question you and you will inform me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye has seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent on dust and ashes. Now, after Adonai had spoken these words to Job, Adonai said to Eliphaz and Temanite, My anger is kindled against you and your two friends because you have not spoken about me what is right, like my servant Job has. Notice he doesn't say anything about Elihu here, probably because what Elihu spoke was right in the eyes of Adonai. So now take for yourselves seven young bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept Job's prayer and not deal with you according to your folly because you have not spoken correctly about me like my servant Job, even though his friends are trying to do right. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as Job told them, and Adonai accepted Job's prayer. Notice it's sort of like Moses and the children of Israel. Uh, In the Torah, Moshe is the mediator. He's the one between the people and God. Moshe's interceding for the people when they're saying stuff, messing up, even though the people are just frustrated from their situations. Moses is the intercessor. He's the mediator bailing the people out. Here, it's very much the same thing. Adonai is certainly not happy with Job's three friends. And what does Adonai tell them to do? Go to Job and he'll pray for you. Job is now the intercessor for the people, and he's the mediator for those friends that they have to go to. They are... Moshe and Job, they are earthly mediators, which is like a reflection of the heavenly mediator that we have in Yeshua. There's pictures of that mediation all over the Torah and the Tanakh. We have a greater mediator than Moshe and Job, one who stands in the presence of God and intercedes for us. An encouraging parable comes to mind when it talks about, when we think about uh, frustration and dealing with frustration. It's a parable from the book of John. Um, Turn there, John chapter 16. It's on page 1042 in your Bible. Uh, John chapter 16. It's on 1198 in mine, or 1199, because our pages are a bit different. But 1042, John chapter 16. Um, This, of course, the... Death and resurrection are foretold. 
he is going to be telling um, his disciples what's happening here. This is near the end of, of his mission on earth as an earthly Messiah. Verse 16 says, A little while and you will no longer see me, and again in a little while you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by telling us a little while and you will no longer see me, and again in a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? And they kept on saying, What's he saying about a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Now, I'm not saying they're sinning by saying that. Their guys are just confused a little bit here. Yeshua knew that they wanted to question him, so he said to them, Are you asking each other about this and said, uh, A little while, and you, know, you will no longer see me, and again in a little while you will see me? Amen, amen. I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will celebrate. You will be filled with sorrow, but your sorrow, sorrow will be turned to joy. Then he gives them a little bit of a parable here. He says, When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. No one will take away your joy from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Amen, amen. I tell you, whatever you ask in my Father's name, he'll give you. Up to now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in metaphors, but an hour is coming where I will no longer speak to you in metaphors, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I come forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. The disciples say, See, now you're speaking plainly and not in metaphors. Now we know that you know everything and have no need to be asked anything. By this we believe that you have come forth from God. Yeshua answered them, Do you now believe? Look, the hour is coming, indeed has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own, and you will abandon me. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have shalom, peace, and in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen and amen. Now these young disciples here are in the midst of just, not sure you could think of a more chaotic season than what they are about to go through. And they're also going to be experiencing incredible spiritual maturation and growth, just like the people of Israel experienced growth um, during very incredibly hard times, like Job experienced growth in the midst of very hard times. The disciples are about to go through a season of growth. The two seem to go hand in hand. The disciples did grow and mature, right? This is why we have all these letters and the apostolic writings and the testimonies that were written years after these events. After the disciples had time to mature and to grow, they could write these testimonies down and give them to us so that we could um, be blessed by them. He's giving them the kingdom vision. He says, I have overcome the world. Don't worry, have peace. I am coming back. When we are always aware that the kingdom is our destination, when we can have that kingdom vision, the chaos of this world is much easier to deal with. 
that hope of the kingdom. It brings us encouragement and it helps moderate our mood a little bit and to calm our speech lest we speak a little carelessly when we're a little bit upset. And it's all tough, very tough. It's hard to do, including myself. We get frustrated at life or a situation or an individual, but we should pause, maybe anticipate spiritual growth, foster that growth, and just know that Adonai works all things for good. So I'll close with this thought, maybe this blessing. May all of us be slow to speak and careful with our words. May our trials be short and the sources of spiritual maturation and growth. And may we stay focused on the kingdom and the return of Yeshua, our king, as we endure and uh, live through those trials. Maranatha and Shabbat Shalom.